Hi, and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. I'm Chris. And I'm Elsa. This is episode 12, The Amazing Adventures of Ansgar. Indeed, uh, Ansgar is a man who shows up in the early Viking period, and he does have a pretty spectacular life, which we will cover in this episode, along with uh, some aspect of life in a Viking town. Yeah, because we spent a bit of time last week talking about rural life in the Viking Age in Sweden after we talked about a lot of those gruesome attacks on Lindisfarne and Hamburg and all those other places that really started off the Viking period. Yeah. First of all, though, should we mention maybe the listeners are hearing us even more loudly and clearly than usually uh, this week? Do you want to talk about why that is? Well, very, very briefly, we have two microphones now, and we're using them at the same time, so we're now sitting across opposite each other. Yeah. A bit like a mini radio studio. Yesterday, a little uh, schnazzy box arrived with the post that I have no idea what it does. Uh, I'm I'm very non-technical myself, but uh, it means that we can use two microphones and record differently and it'll be much easier in the edit and hopefully that should reflect in the output that it makes the listening experience even better yeah so fingers crossed you can hear that now but before we uh, kick off Ansgar, uh, the rest of the vikings and their amazing lives uh, should we cover our swedish phrase yes and um, this one's a bit of a long and complicated phrase so i think also should start yeah, so you're getting two versions, actually, of the same phrase. One is the proper Swedish phrase, and one is what we say in Skånska, which is my regional accent that I'm from from down south. So you actually, this week, get two Swedish phrases for the price of one, and you can pick which one you prefer. Okay, so should we start with the Skånska one? Yeah, in Skånska we say... Okay, and how would you say it in Swedish? Okay, so a few different words and a different order. Yeah. But it means the same thing. Yeah, should we cover the English translation and that maybe that will set us straight. So it translates to English as... The blacksmith's horse and the cobbler's children both walk barefoot. I looked this up, and it, in in English we actually we do have a similar phrase: "The shoemaker's children go barefoot." Even though I've never heard that. Before. No, and, and me neither. During all my ten years in various parts of the United Kingdom, I've never heard anyone use that phrase. But English is a big global language, so maybe. The shoemaker's children go barefoot is something you say in, in your part of, uh, of the English-speaking world. Uh, if so, you can always drop us an email and say that, yes, we, we say that. This is Maltese or yeah. South African. It means that you neglect the one nearest to you. So the shoemaker or the cobbler makes shoes for everyone else, but his own children walk barefoot. Yeah. Because he neglects them and their shoe needs. So if you're at a house party or at dinner at a friend's who's an interior designer, but their house looks terrible from the inside, you could say to your other friends who are there, you could say, 
smeddens mer och skumagens glutter går bägge bara And then they would say, oh yeah, yeah, I agree. He or she clearly spends a lot of time making other people's houses look nice, but their own house doesn't look that nice. There you go. There we go. Two versions of the same same phrase in one this week. But before we go any further, unfortunately, we have to make our first apology or our first correction. So last week when we were talking about Lindisfarne, I said that I went there and we didn't get stuck from the oncoming tide. But a listener who also happened to be there on holiday with me at the time has texted in, Laura, thank you for getting in touch, Laura. She said, I lost my will to live walking to Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne broke me. I feel like you need to do a clarification on the next episode. So this is the clarification that our trip to Lindisfarne was not as rosy and happy in Laura's memory as it was in mine, but it was a a good 15 or 20 years ago, that's my excuse. And what makes this trip a bit more dramatic, something that Laura remembered that I hadn't, was that the beaches around Lindisfarne used to be a military testing ground for weapons, and we walked across this effectively literal minefield, and Laura's found the sign which is still up on the beach, and it says... Danger, former military target area. Do not touch or pick up any metallic objects. They may explode and kill you. Visiting Lindisfarne, the historical site, and then it just being an awful excursion into a military zone. But yes, back to the real content for today, I think. So, last week we spoke a lot about daily life in rural Sweden during the Viking times. This week, we'll look at towns in Sweden during the same period and have a bit of a case study of a place called Birka. Yes, um, the reason we're looking at Birka specifically is that A, it's really well studied in comparison to other sites in the Viking Age, and B, it's the place where our main character, or our first ever real character, I guess, in this podcast unless you count the murder victims that we've talked about before, like Becker's Goodskvinnan. Yeah, this is where Ansgar goes. Yeah, so this is our first real character in the sense of a person who features in Swedish history where there are clear written records of when he was born, what he did in his life, when he died, all of that. So we've progressed far through history in these these 12 episodes, and we're now arriving to a period in history where we have those kinds of records. Yeah, and a lot of the records are of his time in Birka and what happened there and what it looked like. So that's really great for us to be able to talk about that. This is really exciting, but he's actually not our first Swede. He's our first visitor to Sweden. The main question, though, before we get started is, who was Ansgar? Yeah, well, firstly, his name's spelt differently in different sources. So you might sometimes see it spelt Ansgar with A-N-S and then G-A-R on the end. And then sometimes it's spelt Anskar with a K-A-R. And Ansgar is famous because he was a Christian missionary and also later became an archbishop. And he spread Christianity to a place where all the people believed in the Norse gods, mainly Denmark and Sweden. 
He rose through the ranks of the church and started off trying to convert the Danes and was quite successful at various periods and became quite good friends with a few of the Danish kings. Because of this work, he was then recommended to go to Sweden to try and convert the Swedes too, and that was when he spent a lot of time in Birka. He had all of these different offices and jobs going on throughout his life, and he was starting to become one of the real adventurers of Christianity, really, going to new places and spreading the religion. Yeah, he was actually pretty good at this whole spreading Christianity business, and so good that he has become known as the Apostle of the North because of his travel and this specific mandate that he had to spread Christianity to the rest of Northern Europe. And you have a really odd yeah. memory of him. <laughs> Not of him personally. I wasn't around when he was around, but it's a bit of a sidetrack, but bear with me. I have a very strong memory of being in middle school, so between the age of 10 and 13, and that we went to see a school play that was all about Swedish history. So some traveling theater company came to my hometown and did a play about Swedish history. They used the character Ansgar as the host. Or the narrator. The narrator, yeah. The narrator that took you through different times of history. And every time he came on stage, the character, he'd sing a little song that went like, Anskar, Hantori Mahoda Hanskar. Oh, Anskar. He has literally very strong gloves, but it means like he is in charge of things. I have a, such a strong memory of this, but then I have spoken to friends I went to school with, and they have no recollection of this. They have no recollection of us ever seeing a play like this and i've googled and tried to find out if there was a theater company that traveled around and did this history play for different schools in sweden and there is no trace of this which has led me to wonder if i have just dreamt or made up all of this in the play and ansgar and tori mahoda hanskar and all of this it's 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 bizarre but I remember it so strongly and no one else does. Yeah, interesting. A bit of a spoiler, but Ansgar does have a few visions at various points in his life. So maybe you had one of these visions. I don't know. Or maybe I've just gone completely mad. I don't know. But that little bit of song, that has been stuck in my head for 20 years now. Oh, well. Back to the main narrative. Yeah, Ansgar came to Sweden a number of times. and. He also helped organise other trips for his fellow monks. So he was really involved with Swedish history at this point. And we're able to tell you a lot about it because his whole life is written down in this thing called the Vita Ansguria, or the life of Ansgar. This is an entire biography of Ansgar and all of his travels. And it's actually seen as a pretty decent source because it's written down by an archbishop called Rimbert who is a student of Ansgar and also his successor as Archbishop. And so this Rimbert would have had access to a lot of information and would have been able to talk to Ansgar about everything that Ansgar saw and everything that he did. And this is amazing. We've gone from absolutely zero legit personal information and these fairy tale kings and half made up, half 
factual accounts to a whole book written about one of our characters. It's it's like zero to ten all in one go. We have so much information, in fact, we won't be able to talk about all of Ansgar's life today. We'll gloss over some of his longer trips to Denmark and his upbringing, etc., and just focus on his work in Sweden. Yeah, so seeing as there's so much, I guess we should start now. Let's get into the Amazing Adventures of Ansgar. Our story with Ansgar begins in 829. This is when he's 28 and he's spent a lot of time working in Denmark at this point, trying to convert the Danes and meeting with Danish royalty. But he's grown up at this point, studying a lot really hard in the monastic institutions and the monasteries and is supposedly really well learned and knows his religious texts very well. And that's something that comes across in his life a lot. And one thing that is important to mention is that he's French. He's grown up in northern France and spent a lot of time in those institutions there. So whilst he's not our first Swede, he is our first visitor to Sweden from these Christian institutions. And so born in 801. And so now once we're in 829, he's 28, as I said. And as well as a few other monks, he's being sent to Sweden. And he's going with an assistant called Father Whitmar. And Whitmar's probably a little bit nervous because Ansgar's previous assistant, a guy called Outbert, died of a horrible illness during their mission to convert the Danes. So that's probably not too promising for Whitmar. Gosh, that is not like you go for that job interview and you were like, can you tell me a little bit about the guy whose role I'm taking over? And Ansgar just doesn't, he died on our previous trip. Like, it doesn't fill you with confidence in taking over the job. No, but Ansgar very much is ready for this because he has been trying to convert the pagans of Denmark and has been used to this whole spreading Christianity role rather than just being a monk in a monastery and reading and preaching amongst themselves. He's got this external role as well. Now, there are going to be a few names that pop up here, so apologies for having a lot of new names, but um, it should be relatively easy to keep track of. So, Ansgar and his friend Whitmar are sent to Sweden because Louis the Pious, the king of the Franks, and effectively Ansgar's big boss, has supposedly received a visit from some Swedes. And these Swedes were said to be sent by King Björn of Sweden to ask for some monks to come and help spread Christianity throughout Sweden. Now, this is a Christian archbishop writing the life of Ansgar, so Rimbert would naturally want to make it seem like at least some of the Swedes at the time were wanting to be converted, so we have to take this with a hint of salt. Yeah, I don't know. As we've mentioned before, the dates for any reigns at this point, or even the, even if there was an actual king of Sweden at this time, both is highly doubted and were quite improbable actually especially the part about one king ruling over all of sweden that's not very likely but we can maybe say that this björn was at least a minor local noble or or even a minor king of the general area around the town of birka where where ansgar eventually ends up because we'll see why we've come to this conclusion in a bit, but he's probably not the king of all of Sweden. No. So, anyway, the journey starts off with a bit of a bang. The life of Ansgar first says that the voyage 
to Sweden was a complete disaster. But he won't give you too much information because only Father Whitmar has all the real gory details. So we should just go and ask him instead. This was so funny reading this Vita and Skari. Rimbert, he has made all these notes where he essentially just says, but you can go and ask this person or you can go and see that because he is writing for the audience of his time. He is writing, assuming that we can go and ask these people. And now you read it sort of more than a thousand years later and you just sit there pulling your hair out going like, stupid Rimbert, we can't go and ask these people. Father Whitman died 1200 years ago. We can't go and ask him. But luckily, like a lot of these tales, he says something and then he contradicts himself. So luckily, Rimbert does at least sum up the journey for us. And he says that the monks were travelling with merchants on ships, but they were attacked by pirates, of which we can assume were Vikings. The merchants apparently tried to fight back the Vikings, but they were overcome because they were proper professional warriors and they were just these poor merchants. And the pirates took all of their stuff and the ships too. And most annoyingly for Ansgar, they took all the royal gifts that King Louis had prepared and given to Ansgar to take to the Swedish king and nearly 40 religious books, these amazingly decorated books and texts that were supposed to be used by Ansgar to help preach and spread Christianity to oh, the Swedes. Poor Ansgar, his trip really doesn't start off well. Uh, like Chris said, uh, a lot of people presume that these pirates were other Vikings, maybe Danes, maybe Norwegians. Either way, they had to do the rest of the journey on foot after Ansgar first had to convince them all not to give up and just go home. So they did have to hitch a few lifts on boats when necessary, but it doesn't say which way they went and at what point they were attacked. Maybe they sailed straight from the Hamburg area, which is where Ansgar was based uh, when he started doing this work. So Maybe they went from there all around Denmark and round to Sweden and were stopped somewhere along the way. We don't know. We know that later journeys, they actually depart from Denmark because by then these Christian missionaries have a bit of a base there. But on their first journey, they might have done that or they might have gone all the way from Hamburg. Either way, as they were traveling with merchants, it's only natural that some random Vikings would probably try to rob them. They had valuable stuff, so this time they managed to do it, how things worked. Not saying that it's nice to be mugged, but it's not surprising. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately for them, they had to walk all the way to Birka from some part of their journey. And the life of Ansgar does say it's a long trip, so they had to walk for quite a long way. Yeah. So um, that's really interesting. But at least they didn't have all the books to carry. Um, True. By, by virtue of having lost some of their luggage, they had a lighter load. Yeah. But anyway, after this long trip, they finally arrive to Birka and there's this good passage that's actually really quite interesting and shines a bit of light on this whole king of Sweden business. So the life of Ansgar says that when they arrived, they were kindly received here by the king, who was called Björn, whose messengers had informed him of the reason for which they had come. When he understood the object of their mission and had discussed the matter with his friends, with the approval and consent of all, 
he granted them permission to remain there and to preach the gospel of Christ and offered liberty to any who desired it to accept their teachings. Hmm. So, first thoughts? Well, remember at the start when the Swedish king had supposedly asked Louis to send the monks? So if he had done that and now when they turn up, he knows nothing about it and he had to be told about them by messengers to explain supposedly the object of their mission. I mean, either King Bjorn has a very short memory or it's not true that he had actually asked them to come. Yeah, and the rest of the passage um, really does add to this is he a king? Because Bjorn has to ask his friends if the monks can stay, and it's only after he gets the approval and consent of all that he's actually allowed as the king to let these monks stay. And that isn't really the status of a very powerful, all-powerful king if he has to ask his friends if these guys can stay. But there's a lot that we can talk about the status of nobles and kings throughout the Viking Age, and there is a lot of discussion about how much minute, small-level detail and power that these kings would have had. So this is definitely something we'll return to later in another episode of the podcast, but just something to keep in mind and perhaps remain a bit sceptical about who this Bjorn guy actually was. Yeah, and another reason to remain healthily sceptical is that Bjorn he is actually on this list of mythical Swedish kings that we talked about in the Mind the Gap episode. So, yeah, lots of ifs and buts around uh, this guy. But let's continue with Ansgar's story. Yes, so Ansgar and Whitmar set about preaching in Birka after Björn and the locals let them. And apparently there are Christian prisoners, which we can probably read as slaves, in the town. And they were really happy that some fellow Christians and monks came and they were able to pray properly again together. So that's nice of them. And the preaching was seen as at least a small success as a man named Herogar, who is called the prefect of the town. So that led some people to be sort of like maybe the mayor or at least had some sort of role in managing some parts of the town or the trade. He was also a beloved counsellor of Björn and he became baptised. He loved Christianity so much he even built a small church on his ancestral land and he returns to the story later with what are these remarkable deeds which is definitely something to look forward to. Ooh, spoilers or or teasers maybe for yes. uh, what's to come later in the episode. But good for Herigar, at least someone is getting the benefit of Ansgar's horrendous journey and make it worth it. This also shows that at least some of the people were receptive to this new religion and even the elites were receptive or at least so passively allowing it, not hostile. That's quite interesting. It definitely isn't a long-term grassroots-type campaign before any of the elites get interested. It's of Ansgar rocks up and the elites are okay, perhaps even interested in what he has to say. Uh, The story also gives us evidence of these prisoners or slaves already being Christians, so supposedly then having come from areas that were already Christian at this point. And the Viking slave trade is something we will cover in later episodes. Yeah, so perhaps these slaves were 
bought by the Swedes from the Danes and Norwegians who were attacking England and France at this time. Or maybe this is evidence that actually some Swedes were involved. Uh, we don't, we'll never have answers to that question, but it's a, a good thing to keep your mind thinking about in the background. Yeah. So how did Anskar's first stay in Sweden come to an end? So the narrative doesn't really have any more detail, but Rimbert says that Ansgar spends another year and a half in Birka and is preaching and doing all of this sort of stuff throughout that period, but there's no sort of standout event that happens. But he is asked to return home by Louis in 831, and he heads back to the Franks, and as he goes, he takes letters written in the style of the Swedes. So... That's presumably runic letters or something. And these are given by Björn for Ansgar to give to Louis. So that's quite exciting and shows you that the elites were talking to each other, at least in a very introductory way. Yeah. And once Ansgar gets home as a reward for his great job in spreading the Christianity, he becomes an archbishop. And not only that, but he gets asked to go to Rome to see the Pope to, to get it confirmed, which is great. And whilst he's in Rome, the Pope gives him this sort of foreign ministry role. So he's made a papal legate and he's specifically tasked with spreading Christianity to the Scandinavians and also the Slavs, as well as doing this archbishop role. And he shared this foreign ministry type role with another archbishop, the Archbishop of Reims. Wow, that's all in all a pretty good reward. Definitely a big promotion. And this is when he gets his the Apostle of the North nickname as well. So then he begins talking with other monks and they decide that someone should go back to Sweden to continue Ansgar's work because Ansgar is by now an archbishop so he shouldn't really be too far away from home all the time and he doesn't really have time to go back to Sweden himself. Yeah, he's got loads of admin and running a whole diocese to do himself. So that's a pretty big job. Being an archbishop in the 800s was busy, busy work. I bet being an archbishop these days is pretty busy. Yeah. So they send another regular bishop to go to Sweden instead, a man called Galtbert. Excellent name. They were fond of names ending in Bert. Yeah. We've had Galtbert, Rimbert. Outbert. <laughs> But Galtbert has a holy name, Simon, so maybe we should just call him Simon. Yeah, I think we'll use Simon. And this Simon, apparently, the life of Ansgar hints that he got the job because he was a relative of the Archbishop of Reims. So, ooh. I smell nepotism. Yes, but regardless of this, at least Sweden has its second monk and its second mission that's going to visit them. And we don't have a date for this, but it's sometime between Ansgar becoming Archbishop in Rome in 832 and the early 840s. So presumably Ansgar would want someone to go back pretty quick. So maybe the middle of the 830s is a good time for this. So Simon went back to Sweden and was supposedly also greeted by this King Björn, who apparently by this time remembers that there are Christian monks and could remember Ansgar. So maybe his memory problems have got a bit better. Yeah, which is unusual with age that your memory improves. But anyway, he even lets Simon start building a church at this point. 
So, like Amskar, Simon also travelled with a few other priests, including one called Nithod, or Nithod, maybe. They stay for a long time, and they continue preaching and spreading the word of God. Yeah, but then it's at this point where we reach the nasty period of Viking raids that we touched on last week. And this is happening both back in Hamburg with Ansgar, but also in Sweden. And so this comes to a head in 845, so this is quite a bit later from Ansgar's first trip. And this is when Ansgar's hometown and base of Hamburg is brutally sacked by the Vikings, which we briefly touched on last week. Ansgar has to flee because the entire monastery is sacked and destroyed. And he goes first to Bremen and wants to sort of go into Bremen and start becoming a priest again in Bremen. But the Bishop of Bremen is apparently really jealous of Ansgar. He says that, oh, Ansgar is so learned and so wise, and I'm just a normal, regular bishop, so if Ansgar comes here, I'll just, you know, I'll be forgotten about. No one will care about me, the normal bishop of Bremen, so he doesn't let Ansgar in. That is really petty of the bishop of Bremen, I think. Yes. Very small-minded. So, anyway, that's how he acts, and Ansgar has to go back to Hamburg, where there is a devout lady with the absolute perfect name of Ikea, who looks after him. Yeah, her name is Ikea, I-K-I-A. Not the, obviously, the Swedish furniture company, but this is unbelievable. I I laughed so much when I read this in The Life of Ansgar that there's a woman called Ikea. We, We will no doubt cover the birth of Ikea, the famous furniture shop, much, much, much later in this series. But I just love the fact that Ikea has already popped up in the 840s in Swedish history. It's really something that has been with us forever, it seems. But yeah, this time in the form of a devout lady in Hamburg who helps Ansgar build a monastery nearby. To replace the one that's being destroyed. Yeah, obviously Ikea had access to a lot of flat pack furniture. Yeah, helped him build a monastery quickly. Uh, so they can take refugees back to uh, back to Hamburg. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Um, but unfortunately for Sweden, and particularly for Simon, it starts getting messy back there too. And this is also in 845, when apparently the Swedish locals start becoming a bit angry at the Christian presence in Birka, and they are whipped up in fear and hatred of the devil, according to Rimbert. Hmm. And Rimbert describes this whole situation as Thus it came about that some of the people, moved by a common impulse, made a sudden attack upon the house in which Simon was staying, with the object of destroying it, and in their hatred of the Christian name they killed Nithard, and made him, in our opinion, a true martyr. Simon himself and those of his companions who were present, they bound, and after plundering everything that they could find in their house, They drove them from their territory with insults and abuse. This was not done by the command of the king, but was brought about by a plot devised by the people. Oh, this is horrible, but it also means that that's it. The Christians are out. But notice again that the king, once again, can't seem to control his people. This was not done by command of the king, but was brought about by a plot devised by the people. So it's 
a sort of popular violent uprising against these Christians, it seems. Yeah, and that's exactly the way that sort of modern scholars have seen it. They all call it this uprising for some reason or another. We don't really know why, unless you believe the you know the devil um, is is making them do it. But they killed Nittard, and Simon is thrown out with insults and abuse. Horrible. But yeah, so Simon runs all the way back to Hamburg and Rimbert says in the life of Ansgar that there was no Christian missionary presence in Sweden for the next seven years. And naturally, Ansgar was really disappointed about all of this. And he was particularly worried that the locals would forget about this Christianity business. And he was supposedly really anxious about the fate of that old Herogar chap, the prefect. And he was rightly worried about Herogar because the life of Ansgar says that throughout these whole seven years, Herogar gets so much abuse from this pagan mob and the locals that he's really like suffering from all all throughout this period without being allowed a formal Christian presence in Birka. But he still doesn't give up his Christianity. So no wonder Rimbert likes this Herogar so much. Now, Ansgar eventually got so worried that he sent a hermit, which is a religious kind of secluded priest, uh, he sent him to go visit Herogar and check up on him. When he arrived, he tried to start preaching, but the Birka residents were quite annoyed by another Christian arriving and preaching publicly, so Herogar and the hermit had to start worshipping together in secret but with permission of the king. So that's at least something that the king allowed it. And it's at this point where we get a number of stories about how pious and religious Herogar is that are pretty crazy, to be honest. So we picked out two that summarise this overall experience. The first one begins that Herogar and a few of the other leading figures of Birka sitting around in a circle discussing town life and they notice that this huge cloud is coming over them and that it's about to rain so Herogar says to one of the others he says okay it looks like it's gonna rain you think all this Christianity business is nonsense so how about I pray to God and ask him not to rain on me and you pray to the Viking gods and ask them not to rain on you and we'll see who gets wet and they sit there Herogar prays to God and it starts raining but Herogar and the guy sitting next to him are the only people who don't get wet and all the people who are praying to the Viking gods get soaked. So this is an example that Herogar is so in touch with God that he can even help command the weather, which is lovely. And then there's another even weirder story where Herogar has sort of broken his leg or can't walk properly because of a problem with his leg and all the other Vikings are teasing him and telling him that ah you suck if you just pray to the viking gods your leg would get better but he doesn't do that obviously and he says no can you carry me to my little church so the vikings carry herogar to his little church and once he's inside he prays to god his leg gets better and he stands straight up and walks out again (laughs) so it's all these examples like sort of almost minor miracles i guess of why herogar is so pious Oh uh, yeah, yeah. There we go. Two pretty extraordinary stories, but they're not Herigal's only contribution to history. In fact, this next event is what he's most famous about. Now, some people say it's definitely history, and some people doubt it. So it's a long story that we'll try to summarize. 
Yeah, so basically, at some point in this period, there was another Swedish king called Arnund, who at some point was driven away from his territory, and he went south and stayed in exile in Denmark, but he was always thinking about how he could get back his kingdom. And finally, he decided to ask the Danes to give him some help. And he promised them that if they helped him get back his kingdom, he would let them rob all of Birka and take as much stuff away as they wanted. And so the Danes, knowing that Birka was this great trading town, said, oh yeah, we'll have some of that. And so they gave him 21 longboats to add to Arnon's 11 of his own. So there's 32 longboats in Birka trying to take it back for this exiled Swedish king. When they got there, King Björn was actually away and the chiefs and people like Herogar had no time to sort of get the townspeople together and resist them. So they just turned up and were sort of almost in charge. Yeah, and this is when Herogar gathered up the merchants and town people in a nearby hill fort. But because they couldn't hold off 32 longboats, they tried to bargain with Arnund and Arnund asked for a hundred marks of silver, which the merchants gave him, but then the Danes felt angry as they thought that, in fact, every merchant had more than that each, so they wanted more. So Herigar then convinced the merchants to pray to the Christian god and ask him to save them. Yeah, because, as we said, we knew the Danes were promised almost anything they could get from Birka, and then they're being given this small, tiny amount of money to go away. So naturally, they want more. Um, so they're still wanting to attack Birka, but Arnund himself tries to stop them, and he gets them to commit to this sort of game of chance. And he says, if we ask the Norse gods what they think, Maybe they'll let us know if we should attack Birka or not. And this was through them sort of drawing lots, which has been interpreted by the modern historians as them casting runes. So almost a bit like dice, I guess. And eventually the result ended up being that the Danes would be cursed with bad luck if they were allowed to attack Birka. So they just gave up and went to attack a Slavic town first, which people think might be somewhere in Poland. So they've gone absolutely miles away because Arnund and the Norse gods won't, won't let them attack. How? I don't know. So Rimbert is saying that this is basically Herigar asking for help from God and that stopped the Viking attacking. So Herigar had some sort of control over a divine intervention then. Yeah, that's how definitely how the life of Ansgar says. It's Herigar's relationship with God that is so strong that it can even control the Viking gods. So it works so well that even Arnund gets quite upset about his plan and his coup and he gives the money back to the townsfolk of Birka and apologizes to them and says oh I'm not going to go off with the Danish Vikings I need to stay here and sort of be a good guy for a while so you don't all hate me. Wow well, there's so much to unpack here but first and perhaps most importantly because this was such a stressful experience no doubt Herigar then died, which is very sad, and the hermit that was accompanying him then decided to leave as well, uh, wanting to go back to being a real hermit and not stay in Sweden. So Sweden again had no priests. Yeah, and 
looking back at this whole relationship with Bjorn and Arnund, this is a, what some people have said is more evidence that Bjorn isn't the king of the whole of Sweden. They seem to think that maybe Arnund was king of a nearby settlement and maybe they had sort of overlapping areas of authority and Bjorn became too strong and Arnund had to leave or something like this. But the idea is that they would have both been powerful people at the same time, so there couldn't be two kings of all of Sweden. So maybe they're these local minor nobles that are having squabbles together. Yeah. Well, either way, what's what's happening back on the European continent? Yeah, so back in 847 or 848, so just a few years after all of this drama, the angry priest of Bremen, who didn't let Ansgar in that time when he was a refugee, he died. So apart from the whole uh, fellow Christian dying thing, it's actually quite good news for Ansgar because the church authorities merged the Bremen diocese with that of Hamburg. So Ansgar got a bigger area to manage and his job got a little bit more important so he sort of won that round definitely and Ansgar then spent a lot of time over the next years working in this area and also with the Danish king King Harik II who he actually managed to convert so that's a big success Uh, shortly after this there is of course a lot of discussion between Simon and Ansgar about the need to send someone back to Sweden Again, there is another great quote from the life of Ansgar we have to read out. So it says, Simon replied that, as he had been expelled from that country, he would not venture to go thither again, and that the attempt could not be too advantageous, but would on the contrary be dangerous, should those who remembered what happened before raise a disturbance about him. He said that it seemed to him to be more fitting that he should go who was the first to undertake this mission and who had been kindly treated there, and that he would send with him his nephew Ermabert. Yeah, so apart from the great name Ermabert, Simon is basically guilt-tripping Ansgar to go back because he says, well, if I go back, they kicked me out and they hate me, but when you went, they loved you, so you should go back. Who cares if you're an archbishop? The Swedes love you. So I read this quite negatively on Simon. He's just a scared guy who won't go back to Sweden. (gasps) Simon just does not want to go back to Sweden. He's like, I am not going back to those people again. And Scott, you, you, they were nice to you. Like, you managed it there. You should go back. And sorry, I'm just constantly laugh. I cannot stop laughing at the name Ermabert. Yeah, or Ermabert. Out of all the Berts we've had in this episode, Ermabert. It's just the best. I don't know if anyone else watched Sesame Street when they were kids. I think that this sounds like he could be a character in Sesame Street. Bert and Ernie and Irma Bert Bert. Yes. But anyway, Ansgar at this point is now really friendly with that Danish king that he's managed to convert. So the king helps Ansgar arrange ships and even gives Ansgar sort of this token or this icon that he can present to the Swedish king to be sort of like oh look he's legit he's a real trusted guy because he must be because he's got my seal or my token 
and he also even sends his own Danish messenger or interpreter along with him to make sure that the Swedes don't just say no and they let Ansgar back in. Now, it's not exactly clear which year Ansgar goes back for the second time. We've seen multiple different years, but it is somewhere between 850 and 854. It would be closer to 852 if we believe the whole seven years without a missionary comment. So let's say we're now in 852. They went again by boat. This time we know that it took them around 20 days to get there, so quite a long time, but not exhaustingly long. The voyage was apparently made from Schleswig in South Jutland, the Danish area close to Hamburg, but one that was also nearer to Sweden. So this is all according to another source at the time, written by a man called Adam of Bremen, who wrote about all the archbishops of Hamburg. Yeah, of which Ansgar is one. So he is also someone who's really interested in telling Ansgar's story. Yeah. When Ansgar arrives for the second time, no pirates this time, didn't have to walk, so that's great. Yeah. Um, He gets greeted by the King of Sweden, who is apparently a guy called Olaf, the son of Björn. And he meets with Ansgar and he's really impressed by all the gifts he's given and especially this Danish stuff that the Danish king has given him, which is quite lucky because apparently most of the townspeople were actually quite hostile to Ansgar, which isn't really surprising since they'd driven out Simon only seven years before. But Ansgar was kind of hoping that they would remember him and like him, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And... King Olaf says that he's sorry that this is happening, but it wasn't in the power of the king to stop this feeling, and he wouldn't be able to let Ansgar even stay unless he consults our gods by the casting of lots, and until I can inquire the will of the people in regard to this matter. So again, the king is having to ask assemblies of the townspeople and ask his friends and advisors if he's allowed to stay. So even if he wanted to let them stay, he's not able to do that yeah anyway king Olaf has to go and have two town assemblies one in birka and one elsewhere before he is able to let ansgar stay so eventually they do both agree with him so ansgar is allowed to stay and preach and he stays and helps organize the churches and the general area including building a house for the resident priests so He does a lot of stuff before he eventually leaves for Hamburg once more after really having done all he can to make this a stable Christian presence now. And he's leaving my favourite guy, Ermibert, in charge of being the main priest of Birka. Yeah, so Ermibert's in charge and Ansgar goes home. He doesn't stay very long this time. It's not even a year, I don't think. So he heads back. But whilst he's left, his work with Sweden definitely isn't over. Um, We won't go into too much more detail because Ansgar's not in Sweden anymore, but it does relate a bit to what's happening in Sweden. So Ehrenberg doesn't stay for ages. He stays for about three years or so, and he's replaced in 855 by an unnamed priest. And this unnamed priest won the respect of everyone in Birka. So that's really good. And Ansgar would have been pleased that there's been a sort of consistent presence in Birka for a while now. But in 860, 
this priest returns home because this is when Simon dies and he was apparently really emotionally attached to Simon so he wanted to go and help out with I don't know if the funeral was probably happened long before this guy got back from Sweden but he wanted to go home for some reason to do with Simon's death but then he got sick himself and died apparently after much pain Oh yeah, now many people dying of sickness here, which is pretty accurate for the times. Anyway, the next priest that was organised by Ansgar to go and take over from the priest who died, uh, he was on his way to the port of Schleswig to meet his ship when he was robbed and murdered by Danish robbers. Wow, Um, I think a bit of a career tip. Never work for Ansgar, it seems. You're going to be murdered, robbed, abused, abused, everything. But still, Ansgar plows on. He finds yet another priest to go, who was apparently part Danish. So maybe that would help with the pagans. He was part of their own community. And this is one of the last details we have, as Ansgar spent... This last period of his life, around 10 to 15 years after his return from Sweden, just constantly working on his missions to Sweden and Denmark. He does it from the comfort of Hamburg and Bremen, apparently working until his very last breath, which he drew in 865 at the age of 64. So it seems he got dysentery and slowly got worse and worse before dying. So that's a sad way to go for Ansgar. Yeah, he apparently got the dysentery in 864 before dying in 865. So that's a few months of dysentery before he died, which is really sad for our sort of main character so far. Uh, That's not a pleasant way to go, but he gets canonized, so becomes a saint after his death. So... As at least something after after what would have been a long and, and painful end of his life. And then about 1,200 years after his death, a Swedish schoolgirl may or may not have seen him in a play and the song he may or may not have sung has stuck in her head for 20 years. So Ansgar accomplished a lot in his life, that's fair to say. Yeah, but... Ultimately, and sadly for him, his trips aren't really seen as that successful. There's always this pushback. The townspeople keep rebelling against the king and the Christian presence in Birka. And Sweden isn't Christianized after all of this hard work. And it's centuries until this happens. And in fact, there's a lot of pushback in Denmark too near the end of Ansgar's life. And it's not really becoming a big thing after Ansgar dies. It seems like a lot of people after this think, oh God, it's so much effort. Ansgar tried so hard and couldn't even do it. So why should I bother? But it does show you how concentrated these early Christians were focused on spreading the religion to the people nearby. And it's great because we get all this amazing detail of what was happening in Sweden. Yeah, definitely. It gives us a lot of great detail about daily life at the time and also the ways in which these so-called kings had authority or perhaps lacked authority uh, over their local people. And in general, it just adds to the archaeological details we have about 
places like Bjerka, it's a great reference to have these uh, written narratives, and especially the Vita Ansgari. Yeah, so Ansgar arrived to Birka and got to see all of this stuff. But what did it look like? Luckily, we have this pretty decent picture of Birka due to the life of Ansgar, but it really comes to life when you add in the archaeological records. Yes, we're quite lucky in the sources in this episode. So Ansgar arrived to what was daily life at the time and not the raiding and pillaging Vikings that we were used to think of. So he arrived to everyday life for Vikings. And last time we talked about the micro aspects of daily Viking life, you know, what they ate and what their houses looked like. This time we're going to talk a bit about the macro level stuff. As Peter Archer puts it in his book about the Vikings, quote, During the Viking Age, the people also evolved a steady and productive life as farmers, traders, and townspeople. And that's the world that Ansgar arrived to when he came to Birka. Birka was this big mixing pot. Yeah, exactly. And the sorts of things that they would have been doing there are really well summarized up by one more quote, which will be the last big quote for the day, I promise. It's by an article called Northerners, Global Travelers in the Viking Age by Eva Anderson Strand. And she writes, Archaeological evidence from excavations also indicate that people were living in different types of settlements, mansions, ports of trade, and small towns. There is also obvious evidence of specialised craftsmanship at some sites, for example a production of exclusive jewellery from gold, silver, and bronze, elaborate bone and antler work found, for example in combs, needles, and amber objects. Furthermore, the archaeological material confirms that they were working with iron and wood as well as with textile crafts as they built ships and manufactured big sails so they could sail all over the world. Yeah, so Birka was established in the middle of the 750s and existed until the end of the 900s. It was a town on the shores of Lake Mälaren. So if you think about the modern-day map of Sweden, if you just go inland from Stockholm along that lake, you would arrive at Birka. It was mainly an important trading place, one of those nodal points in the overall trade from east to west that we talked about. It's on the UNESCO World Heritage List, along with Hjulvgården on the island of Odessa nearby, it's estimated that around 700 to 1,000 people lived at Birka at its peak, with scope for many visitors. Uh, there are about 3,000 graves in the area, and these indicate a range of social differences. Interestingly, Birka, the town, is on this island that's only actually a few kilometres in size. In the archaeological reports and texts, the town itself is known as 
the black earth and this covers an area of around five to six hectares and it's surrounded by a complex defense system it's got a town rampart an underwater palisade and a hill fort so pretty big stuff for this time and we had the hill fort and the rampart in use by Herigar earlier, if you remember when Arnund came back with his angry Danes to try and rob them. So this is definitely a great example of looking at the archaeological record to confirm something from the written sources. It was somehow originally thought that Birka was undefended before the hill fort was discovered, which was called Borg, and it's always futile to resist the Borg. Yeah. As John McEnroe learnt in uh, Wimbledon. And the Federation learnt in Star Trek. So that's a good multi-use joke. It's unusual that the same joke can be both a Star Trek and a tennis reference. Yeah, a Swedish tennis reference as well. But that rampart is still visible today uh, and it dates from around the 10th century but its chronology isn't really fully understood. But this is the point where I don't really understand how earlier historians thought that Birika was undefended when the rampart is still visible today. Answers on a postcard, please, as they used to say on British TV a long time ago. As we mentioned, Birka had this population of around 700 to 1,000 people, but the settlement did expand over time. It didn't just begin at this top estimate. And both the quantity and the character of the archaeological finds from Birka hint that it was a place that really was involved with these specialised productions and functions, because there's especially many traces of craft production using copper and making these combs that Eva Anderson Strand mentioned. But there was even bed making at Birka. I guess that makes sense. You do need beds. But... Yeah, true. The main settlement was located in a depression adjacent to the water with several terraces of longhouses on a slope above the town. And Fences and ditches separated the shoreside plots in a sort of fan-shaped pattern following the base natural shape. Uh, the buildings faced the water so you could get quick and easy access to the places where you would want to buy or make goods. Yeah, and all of these houses too have shown evidence of household activities and production of textiles through spinning and weaving and the making of threads. And they also had plenty of furs and combs and glass beads too. There was also bronze cast objects made by metal workers. So Birka really was the place where everything was happening at once. And Presumably the trade and the arrivals of all the boats coming right up onto the shoreline was managed by someone, uh, by someone like Herigar yeah. in his role as the town prefect. Indeed, when he was not busy being not rained on. Yes, and not busy praying in his church. And there's a great number of these burials. There's around 2,000 grave mounds in these prehistoric cemeteries and burial plots. And these have received quite a lot of attention from archaeologists, but there's still so many of them left to be investigated that whilst Birka does have loads of evidence about it, there's still so much more that there could be excavated. Definitely. And a lot of these are typical of the Viking Age in the general area around Lake Mer, Laren, in that there are visible barrows above the surface. The graves show both men and women buried fully dressed with jewellery and weapons. There are several chronologically dated pieces that show 
that Birke existed, like we said, from around the mid-750s as a late estimate for its origins. And by the time we reach the 970s, Birke has ceased to exist. The dating of the artifacts found there, and some Arabic coins even, suggest that it still existed in 970, but Anglo-Saxon coins from the 980s and local Swedish coinage from the 990s, uh, that's missing. So we can see a fairly exact end date because there's then no no finds of later coinage. Yeah, and especially as in the 990s, Sweden really does actually start becoming a proper kingdom near this point with coinage from its kings, and none of this is found at Birka. So that's a great example of using the dating from the archaeology to see the lifespan of the town. Now, it's possible that the town was abandoned as the water routes and the whole Lake Melloran changed over time because it really did do this. And it's an area where the water really has changed a lot. The shoreline of the 800s was six metres higher up the island than it is now, for example. So that could have been a huge change on the size of Birka or whether people wanted to keep living there at all. The disappearance of Birka could also be a societal shift as the nearby town of Sigtuna becomes a proper settlement at this time and remains to this day. It becomes the place in the Lake Melloran area. So perhaps people just all moved there and just thought, ah, Birka's a bit dull now, like this Sigtuna place is getting great. That's the real place to be now. Yeah, we talked a bit about long distance versus local trade in the last few episodes, and Birka is a great opportunity to look into this a bit more. Birka was in a primarily agrarian area with good mineral resources and a lot of wild game, so from this area, the produce, fuel and raw materials were taken to Birka, and in turn, Birka supplied this hinterland with simple jewellery, tools and implements. Those houses and workplaces by the shoreline produced a lot of these things. So Birka had these extensive contacts with northern European towns, but they would have been reliant on the local area for its food, fuel and some of its raw materials. They would have used these raw materials by providing the local area with their products and also the imported goods they got from other nodal hubs in places like Russia and France. This sort of thing is a great example of the trade we talked about in the first Viking episode and Søren Mikael Sinbeck's trade network of nodal points. We really see that in Birka with the local and the long distance working hand in hand. Yeah, and this enables Birka to produce so many varied goods that appear in places all throughout Scandinavia and beyond. One of the most important things was fur, because there's so much animal-related goods being produced and being taken to Birka. There are thousands of poor bones from squirrels and foxes which are found in the area, so that indicates that the wild animals themselves were probably taken to Birka for the people in Birka to skin them and adapt them to use rather than that happening where they were hunted. 
There's also raw metal, which appears to have been collected from anywhere up to 200 kilometers away and taken to Birka to help produce these metal objects that they're making there. So the local isn't perhaps super local, it's quite regional. And this region was a great place for people to rear sheep and cultivate flax and hemp. So there was all manner of materials being gathered from this area around Birka for it to manage and use in its production. This is all evidence that some of the textiles were produced in Birka itself, but there's also evidence that some of them would have been imported directly from the longer trade hubs from the east and the south and the west. Yeah, Birka seems to be mainly focused on southwest trading in the beginning. Very few objects have an eastern origin. There's a bit from the Dryalagdoga area where the Swedes began settling, but not too much. It was very much focused on Denmark and the Rhineland. In the end of the 800s, Western contacts seem to be replaced with Eastern, though. This is at the same time as the appearance of the Rus and the earliest substantial settlements in Western Russia and Ukraine, which were used to connect all the way down to the Byzantine Empire and the Caliphates. Yeah, so none of this is happening when Ansgar is here. When Ansgar is in Birka, this is really sort of like it is the place for places like where he's from, like France and England and the South. But yeah, it really develops into this really interesting hub in relation to the East, which we'll talk a lot more about next week. This relationship with the East led to a quite big fundamental change in the import of silver and silk throughout Sweden and Scandinavia. And Birka especially even developed its own weight-based economic system, which they sort of loaned from an Arabic weight system. So they produced these instruments to weigh light goods like silver and silk that was really important to get a precise value of it because they're quite valuable in small amounts. And Birka is one of the places that this first appears in, so this does really imply that Birka was at the forefront of this expanding new trade network at the time. Yeah, overall, Birka can be described as a complex early urban society with a diverse mix of local, regional and supra-regional connections, with an economy based on trade and handicrafts as part of a network spanning the whole of Northern Europe and even beyond. And it is, of course, also where we start the Christian adventure in Sweden, as we've heard with Ansgar. So Birka has a lot going for it in its relatively short lifespan as a town. Yeah, and we'll touch on it so much more through the next few episodes. So it's really good to have, for the first century or so in the Viking Age to have this idea and this image in your head of Birka being one of these proper hubs from the Viking Age but most importantly the main Swedish one so it's really exciting that we've been able to talk about 
Birka, but especially all the stuff with Ansgar because he's just so great. The amount of detail you get, you really do get an idea of the character of the guy and his mindset and the whole frustration with always being kicked out and all his priests dying on him and his relation with Simon. It's really, it's amazing, like you said at the start, Orsa, about how we have, we've had no legitimate information about any individual apart from a few well-preserved murder victims that now we've got a whole life story a beginning a middle and an end and it's all written down by this guy who spoke to him day to day on numerous occasions and knew really knew what he was doing and what he was getting up to i think anscar and his posse of births as i like (laughs) to call them really is an amazing uh life tale but as we said, it also tells us so much about what life was like in Sweden in the 800s. So this has been a really fun episode and we can't wait to continue to tell you more about Viking Age Sweden. So until next time, thank you all so much for listening. We're of course on Facebook. There's been a lot of new interaction on Facebook. So hello to everybody Thank you for everyone commenting. I think there's a few people who are particularly interested in who this episode was going to be about. So the spoilers have now been released. And you can always email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. Get involved with some reviews. The next reviews that we get, we'll read out again um, and give you a name check. So that'll be really great. Keep in touch, keep listening and spread the word. Tell people about how much fun you're having listening to these and we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah. Bye-bye. Hey, door. Hey, door.